This is Stephanie. And this is Brian. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 1 of The Making and the Remaking of a Codependent Mind. We spent the first season laying out how I came to form my codependent behaviors and all of the related behaviors and these kind of avoidance techniques that I used to form this closed, almost impenetrable loop. We refer to it a number of times as a trauma loop. Yeah. Since the behaviors formed around your childhood friendship with the boy we call G and your responses to that original trauma kept you in this kind of suspended, unhealed state for a really long time. Yeah, I wound up kind of directing the way I interacted with people for a large part. I had this really dangerous combination of undeveloped emotional architecture mixed with unexplored trauma triggers and a growing sense of powerlessness when it came to pretty much every aspect of my life. And dangerous because it left you vulnerable to mm. further abuse yeah. and more trauma. Yeah, right. There were quite a few different mechanisms working there that were habitual for you. This web of behaviors had become automatic and you, you really had no clear idea of what was going on in your life. Right. My mind was a noisy mess for much of my life. I didn't want to be that way, but I didn't know where to start to heal all this. It was super daunting, especially once I did try to think about it. The best I can do is to occasionally buy a self-help book and read that, hoping that things would just kind of fall into place from there. But it just wasn't happening for me. I wasn't getting it. So that was last season, the making of a codependent mind. This season will be the remaking of a codependent mind. That's right. To give a little bit more background on the two of us, we are not therapists. The purpose of this whole podcast is not some kind of program where we tell you things we think you should do to heal. So this season is not meant to be prescriptive. This is how you remake a codependent mind. Yeah, right. It is an exploration of how you healed. Yes. And if other people find that helpful, that's terrific. Yeah. I mean, that's our goal has mostly been for our, our own purposes with this. this. This has been a massively helpful thing for the two of us. Just so you're aware, we are a couple. We are a married couple. It's true. <laughs> and, uh, and so the process of healing these behaviors of mine has been within the context of our relationship and growing our relationship. And like you said, the podcast has been a great part of that as it's helped us and or forced us to go even more deeply with some of these concepts and ideas and to really examine our own relationship dynamics. And this is an ongoing process. This, this is part of our relationship. This, these, these conversations that we have, because it's intimacy, it's vulnerability. We find it a valuable piece of a healthy relationship. Uh, it just happens to be that I had some things to figure out, and but we're all the better for it, I think, at this and, point. And you're still figuring them out. Still figuring them out. That, it's, that's it's, an ongoing process. Yes, it's, it's you know, I, there, I don't really expect there ever to be some kind of end goal where it's like, oh, oh my God, I'm 100% perfect and, and, and everything's great for the rest of eternity. It's... It took decades for your codependent mind to be created and solidified. So it's going to take a while for right. all remnants of that behavior to be vanquished. And there was very deep trauma that yeah. is still being healed. Yeah. And, and as we've talked about a lot in the first season, there, there's these kind of self-perpetuating loops. It makes it really difficult to even get on the right track to even know what 
where to begin with any of these kind of things. Uh, the, the best I could do was I just feel bad. Well, speaking of that, the title of this episode is Getting Started. Right. So for you, what needed to be in place for you to get started down a healing path? I think the most important thing by far that I've discovered has been human connection. That's been the cornerstone of this whole entire process. The human healing connection. process. Of the healing process. The so, healing process and the discovery process. So making a human connection. Making a human connection. Was the pivotal first step for you. And that's a lot more difficult than it sounds yeah. for a lot of people. Because obviously it's not just any human connection. I had connections with narcissists as we explored in the first season. <laughs> right. Those were, were not good. You were connected <laughs> to other humans, but <laughs> finding a, a real, strong, authentic human connection. Yeah. Uh, was something that you struggled with it, your it whole is. life, and lots of people struggle with. Right. I mean, it, it, as we explored the source of my codependent behaviors and trauma being this childhood friend, and it kind of created this cascade of behaviors from there forward, and human connection was difficult for me. It was I felt unsafe mm-hmm. most of the time, even when there was no reason to feel unsafe. I was being triggered constantly, not knowing that I was being triggered. I was feeling shame, not knowing I was feeling shame. Just all these unknown, unexplored problems that were coming out of mostly human connection. But ironically, I wanted human connection. I knew this whole time I, I wanted really badly to have human connection. It was just really difficult for me to nail down good, solid, long-term human connections. So what did that look like as you went through your life post-G? Hello, this is Brian. I wanted to let you know that I wrote a book based on the first two seasons of this podcast, and it's now available on Amazon. It represents my most current thinking on both the origins of my codependency and the healing process. I think it's a good companion to the podcast. Um, So if you're someone who also likes to read as well as listen, uh, you might want to check it out. The link is in the show notes. Well, I created this kind of this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy to explain my my trauma responses more or less. Uh, to understand them? Yeah, so I had a lot of fear mm-hmm. of interaction with people and um I was trying to figure out why and but my response to this fear was just trying to make myself kind of small and unnoticeable as I could. I didn't really fully know I was doing that, but I know at times like I acknowledged the fact that I was I felt invisible. You know, like I was kind of trying to make myself invisible, but then I, yeah, I had no idea why. I didn't know why I felt nervous. I thought I had these things like social anxiety or shyness and mm-hmm. things like that. And again, I didn't even, I didn't know it came from the friendship with G, mm-hmm. any of this kind of stuff. So it was just, I came up with narratives to go along with that too. So like, why am I shy? Well, it's because I'm uninteresting. I'm just an uninteresting person and I'm unattractive. Why would anybody really care about me? Like, why would anybody be interested in me? Then there was this providing yourself excuses for yeah. for, for not for not going into social situations. Yeah, yeah, excuses for basically giving into the fear mm-hmm. of social situations and the fear of feeling shame and feeling trauma triggers. Mm-hmm. But then what was also happening as I was further distancing myself from people because if these people actually, if I perceived that people thought. I was uninteresting or unattractive. That was not okay. Only I, it was like I was the only one that was allowed to think that. And if I thought someone else thought that, then I felt resentment for that person. And I would create resentments. I wouldn't even have to talk to somebody. I was just like, I, I, that person's going to think I'm interesting. <laughs> right. Screw that person. Right. And so it was just this, this cycle. I just could, I had the hardest time with this cycle, you know, and it's, not that I didn't have the ability to meet people. I met people all the time and I had friends like in classes and things like that, but I just had a really hard time creating friendships. 
lasting friendships. Even though, like I said, I really wanted to. I mean, and I had some here and there, and I and I knew that it was something I wanted and valued. You also would get sucked up by narcissists. Yeah. We talked about the two romantic relationships, but you mentioned there was also friendships in your younger years. Yeah, there were friendships that were also narcissistic. Also, you know, it was it was a similar scenario, but just with male friends growing up. Yeah, I had the same kind of lack of agency problems I was talking about before. Where you know, and what I'm saying here is, I had too much fear, really fear, and this lack of agency to pursue people I found to be interesting. I would have conversations with them and then let it die. And if someone like a narcissist came along and did this typical love bombing thing we talked about in the last season. Then it's like, okay, well, this person That's is my friend. interested in me. So I guess this is my friend now. I actually had one friend in particular in high school that when I look back on it, it was like the male version of Jay, the relationship, the second romantic mm. relationship we're talking about. It's everything was almost exactly the same, but just in a friendship right. <laughs> kind of setting. So it was hard. Yeah. So it, it was hard because, yeah, if, if it was, it was kind of like mostly like I was either on my own, I kept people at a distance, or if someone did get heavily involved in my life, often it was a damaged person. <laughs> but regardless, it was critically important for a number of reasons Yeah, that you make that human connection. Yeah. For one thing, I was not going to learn anything from these disordered individuals that I was with. They were just making everything worse. They were making my condition worse, preying on my codependency, more or less. But I was not going to figure these things out on my own either. And that's part of the problem was that I kind of had the desire for self-improvement, but I had no idea where to go with it. You had a very distorted sense of yourself mm -hmm. and your reality. Yeah. We talked about the episode of having an underdeveloped emotional landscape. Mm -hmm. Right. Because in part, you could not read the signals that various emotions were giving you. You had this sense of lack of agency, so you willingly substituted other people's sense of reality for your own. And as you said, often those were that was coming from disordered individuals yeah. who were almost confirming your distorted sense of yourself. Yeah, right. So it was very difficult for you to get an accurate picture. Mm -hmm. To build an identity, really. Mm -hmm. yeah. So having other, another, at least one more person, ideally it's great if it's more than one, mm -hmm. being able to offer alternative versions that are actually closer to what real life is. Yeah. Turn the versions of yourself, turn alternative versions of other people's behavior was really important. Yeah, and in in my particular case, these this was so deep. This had been going on for so long that it took a lot to break this loop. It, it uh, cuz you know, like I said, I I've my life has been peppered with decent people, but somehow it still never broke this loop. There was something about our relationship in particular. I think one of the things was was safety. Yes. Is that if you're going to heal from any kind of trauma, mhm. Mm you need to feel safe. Yeah. And like we talked about in the first season, what is particularly sad and about the trauma coming from interpersonal relationships is that you need interpersonal relationships to heal. Mm -hmm. But those are exactly the places in which you feel yeah. the least safe. Right. I had several good people in my life, but for some reason, I never reached that level of safety where I felt I could fully open up and really explore things and face shame is is a big thing. You have to I had to repeatedly face shame. It's something I had been avoiding my entire life and that's part of being vulnerable is being able to face 
negative emotions that mm-hmm. it's going to happen. You know, I, I. But you were at that point of your life, having gone through twelve years of traumatic relationships mm-hmm. that piled on the trauma. Yeah, yeah, Deep, made it worse. Made it worse. Mm-hmm. You were not capable at that point of keeping yourself safe. I, there so, was no way I was going to begin healing while in this these active abusive situations. It, it just wasn't going to happen. And let's say something here about abuse. Yeah. We've touched on this subject um, in, in a couple of episodes in season one when we talked about trauma and trauma bonding. And, and then we talked about it more in the episode on the narcissism and codependency link when we talked about my two romantic partners, R and J. These were abusive relationships. They're, these were, they were ongoing daily abuse. And I had a really hard time recognizing and admitting that that's, in fact, what was going on. So actually, it's kind of two things. You needed to have a human connection at which you feel safe to heal. Mm-hmm. But kind of even before that, yeah, you needed to get out of an abusive situation. Right. Yes, I had to extract myself from this abusive situation before I could even begin to start healing. Because this was activating all of my codependent and defense mechanism behaviors. But as you said, you had difficulty in recognizing and naming the situation you were in Mm -hmm. as an abusive situation. In part, that was because of your own shame. But there were other dimensions as well. You did have people in your life. You have family members. You did have, do have friends. Mm -hmm. And nobody helped you name that situation yeah i mean i it's it's difficult to nail down exactly why i think that it could be it could be all kinds of different things going on for that to happen for one thing the way i'm presenting you know i i'm excusing this behavior because it's just it's too it it gave me too much fear to admit things like that and also just in the situation like the the relationship with r i was gaslit too so i was gaslighting myself about it Actually, to be honest, I to to this day I still do that to some degree. Mm-hmm. Gaslight myself about the R relationship, so it's it's difficult to even say the things that would make somebody recognize it if they don't witness it firsthand. You were very isolated during that period of your relationships with R and J. So you did yeah, have family and friends, but right. there was there was very little contact. Yeah, uh, and this is one thing that abusers do. Mm-hmm. is try to control and curate the people in your life. Yeah, I mean, like in the case of the R relationship, we, we had a, a wider circle, but as I explained, she was more well-behaved. She was able to, to kind of regulate herself enough that when we were around other people, she was able to hide it a little better, and then it was behind closed doors where most of the abuse happened. Well, and the friends were largely people she brought to the yes, relationship. Yes, that, that too, right. Uh, but she, then, she eliminated your friends. Yeah, true, which... You know, wasn't much to begin with, but then with Jay, it's because she really couldn't manage her emotions even in public. She pretty much just kind of cut our life down to this really, really small, including my family. She did had wanted nothing to do with my family. Uh, never once went to my parents' house. <laughs> right. And, you know, just all yeah, just. So uh, there wasn't a lot of opportunity for people to witness right the behavior. Yeah. I think, too, that that there was the issue that people still do not take mental and emotional abuse as seriously as they take physical abuse. I think that's absolutely true. And it's 
a major problem because emotional abuse is extremely dangerous and it could literally lead to death. People commit suicide because of emotional abuse. And you struggled with that. Yes. Yeah. I mean, the relationship with R, I, there were a handful of times that I came close to that. Yeah. Because the mental and emotional violence was so extreme yeah. and so constant. Yeah. Yep. Bullying is a topic that has been talked about a lot in the past I don't know, decade or two. Right. Um, and, and, and schools, especially with children, obviously. Sure. There's Everyone's known about the bullies that beat people up, but I think there's been more recognition about also the emotional abuse bullies. Oh, sure. You right. know. With online, especially with online. Yes, and, right. And there's a lot more access to people. Mm -hmm. People being shamed to the point of wanting to kill themselves. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, there's, it's a very serious thing. Emotional abuse. So it would have been so helpful if I just had more people in my life to share these daily events with that may have actually seen this and said something about it. But the unbelievable thing is I even had therapists that I brought these things to and they didn't see it. You know, I, I Well, had, a couple of them used language to suggest that yeah. they understood what was happening. Well, was not okay, one but... even actually came out and said it was a couple's therapist and, and a couple the, the therapist said to R this sounds like you're abusive. This sounds like you're abusing him. Um, it made her cry. No, it's not true. What are you talking about? You know. But then that was it. The, the subject was dropped from there forward, and it went straight back to R's narrative and why we went there. Brian has, doesn't have enough confidence, and he's not masculine enough, and stuff like that. And so there, off, off it took. The abuse subject is completely out the window. So it, it's interesting that somebody would use that word, which I think is... If you're going to use that word, there's a meaning behind that. <laughs> Especially in a therapeutic context. Yeah. You would hope for that. It should be taken seriously. I've experienced this in my own life where I've had threats of emotional violence and psychological violence directed at me. And the people, some people in my life did not take that seriously mm -hmm. until I mentioned that there was a physical, prior physical component. And right. then, then that changed everything. Mm -hmm, and then all mm -hmm. of a sudden... Yeah, oh, physical, okay. Then, then now it's abuse. Yeah, now it's abuse. Now it yeah. counts. You know, right. now I'm allowed to have feelings about it. Mm -hmm. um, now I'm allowed to have a reaction. Yeah, it can, it can be really frustrating. It, it's, it, it could add to a gaslighting experience, more or less. Like, oh, is this really, you know... I, I think a lot of people may already preemptively be doing that in their head before they even present it to people. Like, oh, is emotional abuse really abuse, though? I think you're right. It, yeah, it's, it's a struggle to, to name it yourself. Mm -hmm. And then to when you try to do it and to, to have it dismissed or yeah. diminished. Yeah, yeah. Then it's like, oh, okay, well, confirmed, I guess. I think, too, for instance, with the couples therapist, that there may have been, for you, a gender dynamic in mm -hmm. play as well. The level of physical violence that's directed at women is horrendous. Women are killed every day mm -hmm. in this country and around the world by intimate partners. Yeah. But I don't think it diminishes that fact, the fact that there is a pandemic of violence, physical violence against women, yeah. to recognize that there is also intimate partner violence against men as well. Mm -hmm. But sometimes people act like that that's the case. That if there's any kind of acknowledgement that men suffer from violence at the hands of their domestic partners, that that somehow is discounting mm -hmm. how prevalent domestic violence is against women. Also, men are perceived as having more physical power. So I guess the presumption is that they can keep themselves safe. Yeah, sure. Right. In these situations. Mm -hmm. As if somehow having 
physical superiority of somebody is going to lessen emotional abuse and and like oh wow i can punch somebody that's gonna that's gonna (laughs) yay so there was your own internal challenges for recognizing this as abuse yeah for it and for naming it Mm -hmm. having to do with shame and just your conditioning as well i mean you were conditioned almost your whole life yeah to accept bad treatment yeah and i was powerless so i had to, I, I was writing yeah. stories to just make myself feel okay about this situation that i felt like i had no power to to change to so there are the internal challenges and then there's the external challenges mm-hmm. where you're surrounded with a larger culture that doesn't treat emotional or mental psychological abuse with the seriousness mm-hmm. urgency and the urgency mm-hmm. that it treats physical abuse right and then also in a culture that has difficulty recognizing domestic violence against men as, again, a serious and urgent issue. Abuse is abuse. Abuse is abuse. So there were all these challenges in, 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 in naming and recognizing it, mm-hmm. which I'm sure a lot of men and women struggle with those types of challenges. Yeah. You talked in generalities about the kinds of violence that you experienced in your two prior romantic relationships. Maybe let's have a couple specifics so people can hear about what that violence looked like. Sure. So I'll start with R. And I should say in, in both of these relationships, there was smaller scale daily abuse, kind of this slow chipping away. And then there would be this inter- intermittent, more grand scale, big, violent experiences escalation yeah so like with r the daily stuff would just be kind of the the belittling and and mocking and shaming and gaslighting and things like that where it was just kind of a daily throughout the day calling you stupid or yeah making making fun of your body yeah yeah body shaming and things like that there was a lot of just little kind of smaller scale things obviously in the grand scheme of things it's not small at all and that stuff shouldn't happen that's abuse also Mm -hmm. uh but one story in particular to kind of illustrate when how it could escalate right so it seemed to get much more violent when we were in a social situation so like we'd go hang out with maybe another couple or a group of people or something like that and i mentioned in in the early episode that uh it seemed like she was kind of rating my performance she was holding back like she was trying to come up with code words to insult me in private mm-hmm. while we are in, but then it would just explode when we get home. It's like, so it, when, when it was safe for her to display violence, it's almost like, yeah, it, it, it built up, built up, built up, explode. So in this one particular case that always pops in my head because it was especially violent was hanging out with this one other couple friend that lived down the street and then, you know, having drinks, hung out for maybe a few hours, then came back to our apartment and no provocation there was no fight nothing mm-hmm. just suddenly just started unloading on how i talked how i looked how i was breathing all that kind of stuff all the usual things that she ripped on me for but in the most extreme mocking hurtful and it she just kept going and going and going it maybe lasted i don't know it, it 20 30 minutes or something just like bringing up every possible insult and and ways of doing it so it'd be like she had a big problem with the fact that I breathe through my mouth a lot, uh, mouth breather, you know, mm-hmm. just uh, mocking me about it. Like, here's how you look. Here's how you, you know, and and uh, she came up with like a 
this Looney Tunes character, like this, there was this like teenage duck with braces or something. So you're like that character, you're like, and just like, just this extreme mocking. And then my posture, you know, like imitating that and like walking around, this is going to be you when you're 80 and just would not stop. And it was really, really triggering me. It was making me feel awful. And I started to cry and I was asking her to stop. And then she started making fun of that and just kept going. And it, and I don't know how it eventually ended at this point. I just remember I tried to leave the room. She followed me, continued Mm -hmm. just an all out assault as if she was almost trying to kill me mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, for, I have, I really don't know what, what triggered it other than somehow this seemed to happen when we were in social situations, you know, so, and, and she would bring in the other people. So th- they're all thinking the same thing. They, they, they all, you, this is how you talk. You, you sound so ridiculous. This kind of stuff. They all know it. You know, everyone knows you're, you're an idiot and stuff. Just, mm-hmm. and as far as I could tell, <laughs> it was just a fun night. <laughs> just, we were just hanging out. I, you right. know, the, these, Two guys that I liked a lot, you know, it was just, yeah. But something made her feel small yeah. or yeah, something insecure and how she handled it was to just completely trash me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's, that's an example. That's just, you know, there were, this was a regular occurrence, that's type of thing, but that was just one in particular that just pops into my head because it had like it so extreme, the greatest hits, like all in one right. little, you know, and then Jay, as we mentioned in the previous episodes in season one about Jay, her style of abuse was more this kind of coercive control type of abuse. Paired with explosive anger. Yeah, explosive anger when when that control was threatened in any way. In, in any way. It could be threatened by some external force, by something she just made up, whatever. Like this control, control, control. And what did that look like on a daily basis? Yeah, on a basis? daily basis. So there, there was, there was this, these daily types of control. A really good example would be um, our sleeping situations. She felt it was imperative that, that she control the sleeping experience. I wasn't allowed to move at all. Like really, not just snore. You know, obviously that's annoying when someone snores, you know, but I wasn't allowed to move. Like I couldn't turn over and stuff like that. And she would get really angry and pound the bed, <laughs> like just kind of so. Swear. Yeah, swear. I mean, like, and so it was. I remember when we started sharing a bed, you were the quietest and still a sleeper I've ever yeah. been around. Well, I, And I think yeah. I said it was like you were used to sleeping next to a lion or something, yes. which, which is exactly turned true. out to be a Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, I've, I've suffered kind of, I haven't healed from that yet. I, I, I wake up all throughout the night. I think any time that my body feels though it needs to move, I fully wake up. It's just, it, it, yeah, it caused kind of lasting damage. Sleep with one eye open, basically. Mm-hmm. I don't get deep sleep anymore because of that experience so that's just one of many i mean everything in her environment needed to be under her control Mm -hmm. and but that's just an example of how it could it was a little kind of a nightly violent daily daily nightly yeah 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 but yes also these these extreme episodes i have one story in particular that happened very early on where i was still going through my divorce with r and she had it in her mind that she wanted to control this this whole process. She saw that, I, I don't know what, she, she just didn't like the way I was handling it or something. It was a particularly difficult time. And she felt as though she was going to step in and just Take tell me exactly what to do <laughs> and, and direct everything. So there was something, there was this incident where R had put some money on a credit, on a shared credit card, even though we agreed that this would be done. You know, we, we weren't going to use that card anymore, blah, blah, blah. I, I talked about how we had credit cards that were maxed out and mm-hmm. all this kind of stuff. And so 
I was confiding in Jay. You just that's what I did. I just overshared this stuff and she was like, Oh my God, how how could she do that? You need to call her on the phone right now and tell her off about this. And obviously I was terrified of R and I was terrified of Jay. <laughs> so I had Jay coaching me and telling me, you need to call her right now, get on the phone. Like she's standing in well, front of me. That's and, not really coaching. That's <laughs> well, directing. It's or, directing. Or ordering. Yes. Yes. You're right. Yeah. It's not coaching. Oh, here's, I'm going to help you. Right. You didn't ask for this. No, I did not want to, to tell off an abuser, you know, this person that had been abusing me for eight years. You don't need to tell off anybody. No, no, this is not the way. Well, I mean, she was doing this in other ways too. I mean, this was something that she was doing with the apart, the, the house that we were renting, telling me to tell off the landlords because they didn't like clean the pool properly and stuff like this. She wouldn't do it. She made me do it. So this was a, this establishing control in every area. She just, so this phone call, I did it. I went through with it and um, she stood there about five feet in front of me and was, had these like wide eyes and like, like anger on her face and was like the stiff body. And like, every time, like I'd start to stray from the script, she'd, you know, like coaching me on and stuff like that. And then the direction was, I needed to tell R that I'm closing this card. Which was her, her idea. You, you Yeah. Yeah. I was like, I don't care. Like, she's not going to do this again. I'll just say, Hey, why'd you spend money? Okay. Mm-hmm. Just don't do it, please. You know, like I, obviously I, I was way too far in the codependent realm, but still I didn't, you know, I don't need clothes, do that, do this aggressive, these aggressive things. But that's what I was telling her on the phone. And, and R was acting really strange. Cause she's like, what is, where is this coming from? This is bizarre, you know? And the next day I was supposed to do it. I was for that day or the next day I was supposed to close this card. Um, because otherwise the anger that Jay was displaying was going to go towards you. Yeah. I mean, supposedly it was anger at R, but mm-hmm. really it was not so much how could R do this, but how could you let R do this? Yeah, right. So yes, right. If, if you don't correct it in exactly the way she wants you to correct it, then you're going to get anger and shame. Mm-hmm. Before and after the phone call, Jay is, is screaming at me. She's she's doing this violent direction while I'm on the phone. But then, you know, as, as soon as I hang up, it's back to the screaming again. And you need to close this card right now. How can you do, you know, you're, you're, you're a loser, basically, for, for allowing yeah, this kind right. of... And then the the next day or the day after, we get in another, because have you done it yet? Have you done it yet? No, I haven't done it yet. I, it, I was terrified of doing this, like because I knew this was something that R had asked me not to do very forcefully in her way. <laughs> right. And she's like, well, we, we're, we, we're doing it right now. I, I called the bank. They didn't allow it, allow me to do it over the phone. I had to go into the bank for whatever reason to close this card. She's like, we're going right, right now. We're going. And so she came with me. She's like, I'm coming to the bank with you up to the debt. It's like, it's, it's kind of like felt like a hostage right you know she brought me into the bank we're closing his card and i'm just sitting there just like frozen terrified mm-hmm. and then of course yeah i mean r finds this out and lays into me and it's just back and forth i mean this this it was this kind of six month period of just extreme discomfort <laughs> being abused by two different people at the same time and i felt suicidal again i mean just <laughs> mm-hmm. it was it was awful there's both the extreme levels of abuse in terms of verbal violence, emotional attacks, emotional threats as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But also, as you said, those were not one-offs. Yeah. They were just escalations of what happened really every day. Right, exactly. So it's it was just ongoing violence that sometimes just erupted into more extreme versions of the same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
And I didn't want to admit it. I just, I could never bring myself to admit it. I mean, the, the, I had the hardest time admitting that this was going on, even though, as I think this story should illustrate, this was abuse. <laughs> Why it's difficult to, to recognize and name it for the person themselves is that shame. Mm-hmm. The shame in being abused. It's terrible, but it's true. <laughs> right. Like I allowed this to happen. I allowed this to happen. I'm allowing this to continue. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm. I'm weak. Good people don't get treated this way. Yeah. So anything that you yourself can do to make it seem not too bad. Yeah, right. Because it's terrible, but it's the shame of it is almost even more terrible. Yeah. So we should add that. So managing shame, learning to manage shame is also very important yeah. in starting to heal. And right. maybe also, again, why other people are so important because mm-hmm. difficulty keeping yourself safe, you have a distorted sense of reality, and you have difficulty managing shame, and you, and you needed help doing all those three things. Mm-hmm. Feeling safe, understanding really what happened to you, and managing the shame from that. Yeah, A lot of people, the human connection that they find to help them do those things is with a therapist. Yeah, it's a great place to start. It's a great place to start. But it, it also is not that easy to find a therapeutic partner. Mm-hmm. You tried. Yeah, I tried a number many. of times. Yeah, and and it just didn't have success with it. It was a, a really long time before I actually did try. I, I, I wished on hindsight that I started seeing therapists in high school when I was really, really depressed. I mean, I was, I've been depressed as far as I could tell for most of my life since the G experience, the, the shame and the trauma and all this stuff just kind of held me in this suspended depression state Mm -hmm. so this depression just kind of carried through i isolated a lot i had a a really good friend for a while but he was an isolator also and the two of us just kind of isolated for 10 years and finally i got to a point where i felt as though my alcohol was problematic and so i decided to try aa which i think you know on the whole there's some good ideas there but and can, it could be a source of a human connection. Yeah. I, I mean, it's at, at the core, you are, you're connecting with other people. Mm-hmm. And, and and it's about trying to better yourself. And, and there's some elements in there that were particularly, at the time, I didn't recognize, obviously, but things like resentment is a, is a big threat in there. Mm-hmm. That's a great thing to be thinking about. Um, but for me in particular, part of the, the, a big, big part of the problem was that one of my core problems was powerlessness. I didn't feel like I had agency, that I had power over my life. And the cornerstone of this program is powerlessness. It's promoting powerlessness. And so I think just for me, this was not a good fit. Also, as it turned out, you weren't really powerless over alcohol. You stopped drinking alcohol fairly easily. Yeah. I mean, it's this was just a symptom like anything else. I remember, you know, I was always kind of on the fence, like, am I really powerless over this? Like, yeah. My life is unmanageable, as they say, but not because of alcohol. It's because I don't know what's wrong. Why am I so depressed? Right. You know, why can't I make human connections? Like, what's what's going on there? That's so. Drinking too much was just a symptom of it. Just like ultimately, depression was a symptom. That was not the problem, for which you. I thought it was for all those years. And you did get a diagnosis of depression yeah. from a therapist. So I, I finally went to my first therapist when during this AA experience um, and it was not a good fit also I don't I didn't know what I was going there for other than just I 
feel crappy and I want to not feel crappy, you know. And so I went to a psychiatrist also and, and was diagnosed with severe depression and given drugs to help with that. And uh, I did I did notice small change with the with the drugs quieted my, the noise in my brain, which I didn't really realize was there because my brain has always been noisy. So I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. I it quieted. So I, I got better sleep and things like that. But it didn't spur on any realizations or anything like that. Like it didn't fix the depression mm-hmm. because I still had all the same problems that were causing it. The unhealed trauma. Yeah, the unhealed trauma and codependency and, and self-judgment. Uh, uh, I can't meet people because I'm uninteresting. I'll, you know, just I carried this thread. And then I got laid off my job and moved to another city. And this kind of magically cured my depression because I suddenly had something to be excited about. I, that On hindsight, this is super clear that that's all it was. I just got excited about this project of moving to a different city. Like, oh, I'm going to start fresh and all this. But later during the R relationship, you were diagnosed again with depression and were given yeah. medication. Yeah. But, but also the... This, when I thought I was cured with depression, it was this, you, you mentioned earlier how these narcissists would kind of find me. And so at this particular time, I, I moved to the city. I was new to the city and I was feeling great. I was starting to put myself out there. Uh, I was even putting myself out there to women, going on a few dates. And then here comes R. <laughs> Snapped you up. Snapped me up. Yeah. And then there went the next eight years, you know, and, and deeper and deeper and more deeper depression than I had ever had and, you know, suicidal. and Yes. And so you go to a therapist during that period when you're... A number in, of therapists. Yeah. When you're in a violent situation, mm-hmm. when you're unsafe. Yeah. And what emerges from that was not... You're in an abusive situation. You need to get out. Well, you're depressed. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was. Yeah. I brought these threads to these therapists because it was so deep into the R relationship that I was fully gaslit by that point. Mm-hmm. And I was gaslighting myself. So this narrative of I, I, I have low confidence and not masculine enough. And I, you know, I was fully bought into this stuff. And so I was trying to find the reasons for my lack of confidence. Oh, it's the depression. Oh, what's the, what's the cause for the depression? Oh, it's the, the childhood friendship that with G that we talked about in the first season. So I knew some things. I just didn't know what it actually caused. It, and so none of these things that I was exploring was the right track at all. It didn't help. None of that stuff helped. So all these conversations I was having with the therapist, it was just like, okay, how, how can you start feeling better about yourself and like what kind of, you know, positive self-talk can you and repair your marriage? Yeah. Repair your marriage. I mean, like even though I was telling them how harsh, I mean, that's, I think the best I can do is just say, Oh, she's, she's a little harsh sometimes in the way she uh, tells me to do things. But you know, I I really don't think I focused on it. I don't know to a therapist. I'm just some guy that's coming in going, I I'm depressed and I have low confidence. What can I do about this? No one pushed me. Mm-hmm. Either is the thing. I didn't. I felt as though I was directing every session. Okay, tell me how your week was. Like I just, I don't know. <laughs> I feel crappy. Why? I, right. What am I supposed to do? The, yeah, I, it never went anywhere for me. We're not trying to discount what people can get from therapy. Yeah. No. Yeah. Just trying to recognize and acknowledge that that it can be hard. It can be as hard to make this kind of strong, authentic connection with a therapist as it is with family and friends. Mm-hmm. But it's important to keep trying. I it mean, is important to keep trying because just to go back to the idea of this human connection being critical. And again, we're not we're trying not to be prescriptive here, but it's hard not to be prescriptive about that. Well, yeah, because this is what helped me. I mean, that's the main point that we're trying to get across is that mm-hmm. that's what finally did it for me. So a family, a friend, a therapist, 
or ideally or all of the above. It's great if you can get all yeah. of the above. I mean, yeah, the more people you can find that you trust and and feel safe with and and challenge you, mm-hmm. um, that you can have good intimate connection with, the better. Going back to this idea of a dis- you having a distorted sense of reality and how problematic that was as you tried to kind of navigate your life. I remember early on when we met, you were out of the relate our relationship for I don't know four years, yeah, or whatever like the extent years. of your the J relationship was, right. and you were prepared at that point to say that R was abusive, but it was mm-hmm. very tentative. Yeah, yeah. Um, you still seem to be hanging on to lots of her stories about you. Mm-hmm. In fact, there was this fear that we might run into her, and yeah. she would be able to tell me things that would put me off. Yeah, I mean, the self gaslighting was continuing. It didn't actually end. And in terms of Jay, you were not even prepared at that point to say she was abusive. No. It was this story about how you were just incompatible on yeah. a, a few things, but really was a fine it was basically a fine relationship, mm-hmm. which is really her story. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Although you did tell me the credit card story fairly early on. And I remember thinking and maybe I said some version of it. Like, that doesn't sound fine. That doesn't sound like a fine relationship. Yeah. It's kind of odd that I chose to say that. I, I that Now looking back, that definitely seems like one of these shame vents that we were talking about. Yeah, I think you probably backed. Once Once I started to push on it, you probably backed off yeah. telling that story. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I really didn't develop a sense of self. Uh, I couldn't trust my own perceptions of the world, really. Other people's stories became my stories. And I think if you're listening to this podcast, you were probably much further along than I was when I started all of this, already making some connections, seeing some parallels, getting some language. Right. You didn't have any of that. Right. I really needed someone I felt safe with that, was, that wasn't actively shaming me, for one, to start working through what was real and not real, kind of separating those. Although ultimately, what I needed was to get better at doing that myself, using my own emotions to take in information about the world. And then being able to evaluate and act, not just falling into shame and fear by default. So that's what the next episode is going to be about. The last episode of season one, we talked about how the way your emotional development was interrupted by abuse and trauma Mm -hmm. and never really taken up after that. So the next episode is going to be you take how you took up your, your emotional development and matured your emotional system. And we hope you'll join us for that episode. Thank you.